Well, good morning. My name is Trevor, and it's my privilege to serve here at Kent City Baptist as one of the pastors. <clears throat> and while this is not exactly the way I thought I would be preaching on Palm Sunday, uh, I am delighted and appreciative for the technology and all the folks who have made this work so that we can still spend some time in God's Word together this morning. So I'm going to ask that you would pray with me and for me, and uh, we'll get started looking at God's Word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I do thank you that even though we are far apart, uh, hopefully six feet or more, that your Holy Spirit is not limited by social distancing, by time or space, or even by infectious diseases. And Father, our prayer this morning is that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand your word well. I pray that you would help us to see Jesus clearly. And I pray that you would help us to live lives that respond in ways that are honoring and glorifying to you. We need your help, and so we ask for it. And we ask that you would help us to respond well for Jesus' name's sake. We love you and ask us all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when I was a young man, a young boy really, uh, I don't remember exactly which grade I was in. It was fourth, fifth, or sixth grade, but right here at our local Kent City Public Elementary School, I remember that my parents realized I had a problem. And no, it wasn't the first time they realized I had a problem, nor was it the only problem that I had, but I had one specific problem, and my parents realized that I was struggling in spelling. I'm, I've never been a particularly great speller, but I was struggling more than normal. And so my parents realized that I had this problem. And that began a series of uh, investigation and looking into why, why am I regularly getting poor grades on my spelling tests? And what ended up turning out was not that I couldn't spell, but that my vision had become blurred. And I would sit about two-thirds of the way back in the classroom, and so when I would copy down my spelling words for the week, I was copying them down incorrectly. And I was having trouble distinguishing an N from an H or an A from an O, and so I was learning my spelling words incorrectly. And so while my spelling grades was a problem, I had a much bigger problem, and that root problem was my blurred vision. I still remember the day that I first got my glasses, and I remember my dad picking them up on his way home from work. And when I first put them on, I remember looking outside through the window. And then I ran to the door and I opened the door to make sure that it wasn't just the window glass or something like that. And I could not believe the vividness and the clarity that I was able to see with my glasses on to help me. And what we're going to see this morning is that Seeing Jesus clearly is incredibly important, and it's something that many people have struggled to do well. And we're going to see how not only did people in Jesus' time struggle to recognize who he is, but that even today, we regularly struggle with recognizing who Jesus is. So I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 21 verses 1 through 11 this morning. I'm going to be reading out of the NLT and preaching out of it. 
Matthew chapter 21. First, we're going to look at verse 1. Then we'll look at verses 2 to 7 and then 8 through 11. Matthew 21 begins like this. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. We're going to stop right there. So just in case your promised land geography is a little bit rusty, as is mine, I have found an incredibly helpful map for us right here. So here on this map, you can see this road into Jerusalem that's highlighted in orange. And there's a, a town called Bethany, which is just off the corner right here and doesn't quite fit on the map or else we couldn't see it very clearly. But as you're coming in, there's this town of Bethpage or Bethphage. Then we have the Mount of Olives. And you'll never guess why it's called the Mount of Olives. Because in antiquity, and even still some to, to, till today, it's filled with olive trees and beautiful gardens. My understanding is that you can see olive trees that are just hundreds of years old there on the Mount of Olives even to this day. And then the Mount of Olives dips down into this valley called the Kidron Valley. And then Jerusalem, which is the city on a hill, you ascend into the city of Jerusalem. So Jesus and his disciples throughout the Gospel of Matthew have been making their way towards Jerusalem. Jesus seems to have been being camped out at Bethany, but he's going to give his disciples some instructions, and they're going to start, and they're going to make their way into Jerusalem. So that's your quick brush-up on geography for that. Jesus, in the end of verse 1, sent two of his disciples on ahead. Now we're going to look at this next series of verses, verses 2 to 7. Jesus instructed his two disciples, and he said, Go into the village over there, and as soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, just say, The Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. Then Matthew adds, this very interesting comment in verse 4. He says, This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, or some translations say, Say to the daughter Zion, Look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a colt, riding on a donkey's colt. So here, Jesus sends his disciples ahead of him, and it's not clear if they started from Bethany and he sent the disciples to Bethphage or if they were at Bethphage and then he sent the disciples to Bethany to get the donkey and its colt. It's not even particularly clear if Jesus had prior arrangements with the people from whom he borrowed this donkey and this colt. From my reading, it seems that it's not unheard of that as a rabbi would be traveling that they might borrow an animal to ride and help them in their travels from one of their followers who respected them. and So it could be that Jesus knew the people from whom his disciples borrow the donkey and the colt, or maybe he didn't. We're not sure. But what we are sure is that Jesus has an uncanny knowledge of what's going on and even how they will respond. And so he sends his disciples to get the donkey and the colt and everything happens exactly as Jesus had told them it would. And this prophecy that Matthew mentions, it comes from the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. And 
it's really important as you're reading Matthew 21 to remember that Matthew has written this for us and he's given us this Old Testament passage. But as we're going to shortly encounter the people entering into Jerusalem and the people in Jerusalem, they didn't have the privilege of Matthew reminding them of this very important passage. And I would like to suggest this morning that this passage is sort of one of the key interpretive lenses that we need to look through to rightly understand what is happening here in Matthew chapter 21. There's a couple of important things I want to point out. The first one is that Zacharias says, Look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey. Riding on a donkey's colt. Now, some translations say riding on a colt, the foal of a, do- of a beast of burden, or the foal of a donkey. And that's just their way of letting you know that there's two different words used here to describe a donkey, and they're both referring to the donkey and the donkey's colt. The second thing, and I think much more importantly that I want to highlight, is when you think of a king riding anywhere, usually it's on a gorgeous white stallion or perhaps a jet black Arabian horse. It's usually not on a donkey. But Zechariah points out for us that as Israel should be looking for their king to come, he's coming in humility. He's coming in meekness and in gentleness. He's not coming as a conqueror riding upon his war horse. He's riding on a donkey. And in fact, actually in the Old Testament, there's precedence for this. Way on back when David was the king and he was nearing the end of his life, one of his sons had sort of started to try to stage a coup and become the next in line to take the kingdom, even though it was David's plan that his son Solomon would be the king. And so David sort of unknowingly accidentally helped sort of set some of these things in motion. And when he realized what his son was doing, he quickly got out of his bed and he told his servants, quickly, go get my son Solomon, put him on my own mule and parade him through the streets of Jerusalem to signify that this is indeed the king of Israel. And so seeing Jesus here in Matthew 21 riding on a donkey in humility, it's this image of the peacetime king coming, not as the conqueror, but coming in meekness. Verse 6 then tells us here in Matthew chapter 21 that the two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt and he sat on it. Or some translations say he sat on them. He sat on their garments. Now the important thing to note here is that Jesus is riding on a colt. He's riding on an animal which is untamed and unbroken. And there may be an indication even here that Jesus his power and who he is is so expansive over creation that even an untamed colt he's able to ride peacefully upon into the streets of Jerusalem. Now we're going to look at how the crowds respond in Jerusalem. Beginning in verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession. And the the people all around him were shouting, Praise God, or Hosanna for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. 
praise God in the highest heaven. Verse 10 tells us, the entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. And they asked, who is this? And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, this is a pretty familiar story. And so, as the crowds are spreading their garments and they're spreading palm branches out on the road, this is really the red carpet treatment of antiquity, of first century Israel. And the significance of palm branches is very much one of patriotism and nationalism and excitement. And so people, as they're entering into Jerusalem, it's, they're in preparation for the time of the Passover. And they start quoting a psalm, and it's Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 and the few psalms that surround it are called the Psalms of Ascent. These were psalms that people coming into Jerusalem would quote as they ascended the hill. And they would rehearse these psalms, praising God for what he had done and for what God was going to do. And so here we have this special moment of the crowd, in a partial way, recognizing Jesus. And Jesus is going through these motions, and he's had this very specific attention to detail and the fulfillment of prophecy to indicate some very clear things. But remember what I told you. The crowd didn't necessarily just finish reading Zechariah chapter 9 of the humble king. And so they see Jesus coming here and they're shouting this song of praise. And so they say, Hosanna, which literally means God save us or save us now. But it became a common way of just saying, praise God. And they're recognizing Jesus as the son of David. And they proclaim blessings on him, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. And so it seems that there is a sense in which they're recognizing Jesus as their coming Messiah. But then in verses 10 and 11, we, we get this ultimate letdown. The entire city is in an uproar. They're, they're sort of disturbed and wondering what's going on as these pilgrims and crowds are entering and Jesus is riding and there's this huge crowd before him and a huge crowd after him. And they're coming up into Jerusalem. And the city of Jerusalem the people there say, who is this? And the response that doesn't seem to fit is they say, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, some people think that this title of Jesus as a prophet harkens back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, where Moses said, the day is coming when there's going to be another prophet like me, this great prophet, and some people think that they sort of give the benefit of the doubt to the crowd as they say they're recognizing Jesus as this ultimate final prophet. I'm not yet persuaded of that. There seems to be this clear tension for the people in Jerusalem. They recognize that Jesus is going through these motions that they expected of the Messiah. But the problem they had is the distinction between a problem and a root problem or a cause problem that goes so much deeper. Just like I had a problem with my spelling words being spelled correctly, the way to fix that was not for me to learn to spell better,
but to get corrective lenses to help me see the board clearly and learn the words correctly. Israel had messianic expectations. They expected that the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, was going to come and he was going to deliver them from this time of exile because Rome was in charge of Israel and in charge of the city of Jerusalem. And the people and the inhabitants of Jerusalem knew that this was not what God had intended for them. How could this be that these Gentile overlords were ruling over the people in Jerusalem and in Israel? And so people were waiting for the Messiah to come and to lead them. Some thought he was going to lead them into battle. And they were ready. They had their swords strapped to their sides and they were ready to follow him into battle to defeat the Romans. And while Jesus was coming, he did not come as a conquering king. He did not come to conquer in spite of suffering. And the incredible tension that the people did not recognize Jesus for who he really was came because Jesus came to conquer through suffering. And there wasn't even a category for this in Israel. That the Messiah could be a suffering servant that Isaiah talked about It wasn't even a category that they had. There was no way for them to reconcile that Jesus was going to come and then be killed at the hands of the Romans. But Jesus was doing something so much more important here. He was not conquering the immediate problem that was in the forefront of their face that they could see. He was conquering the root of every problem that humanity has ever had since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And to this day, he came as the Messiah to conquer by defeating sin, death, and Satan, murdered and crucified at the hands of the Romans. And I think that here in verse 10, we really see the crux of this passage, which is this question, who is Jesus? Now, as we look at the Gospels, there's a number of different ways that people have responded, but I think there's three primary ways that we see people responding to who Jesus is. The first one is the response of the religious leaders who looked at Jesus as a crazed liar. They saw the healing that he did. They saw Jesus delivering people from demonic oppression, and they couldn't reconcile what he was doing with what they believed And so the religious teachers decided that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus called them to account and said, that's silliness, that's nonsensical. How could a house be divided upon itself? But those who view Jesus as this crazed liar, they view him in a way that they reject who he is. But I also want to say, if we're honest... Sometimes we have doubts, and sometimes we wonder, I know I have, is this all true? Is this true? Is this real? What if we've made a mistake? And I want to encourage those of you that experience doubts or have experienced doubts that that's okay. God is big enough to handle our doubts. And I also want to challenge you that if you've struggled with these doubts, or maybe you've asked yourself, what my parents believe, I understand that they believe this about Jesus, but do I really believe that? I want to challenge you to look into the resurrection of Jesus 
And in fact, I want to challenge you to try to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. Because when I've personally experienced doubts, the first thing that I come back to has been, how else can you explain the resurrection of Jesus, the change in his disciples, the people, the witnesses who saw him? I don't want to steal too much of Chris's thunder for Easter Sunday next week, so I'll leave that at that. But if you have struggled with doubts, look into the resurrection of Christ. A second response that we see in the gospel is that of the convenient Jesus. Now, this is the response of those who saw Jesus feed 5,000. And they said, man, this is wonderful. This is great. My grocery bill has been cut in half. Let's make this guy king. And in fact, if we're honest, this is also the response of the disciples, many of them, before the resurrection. This is the response of those who want to follow Jesus when it seems convenient. And again, I think if we're honest, this is often something that we can sort of slide into and get stuck into. It's easy to follow Jesus, but if it's going to take up my time, I don't know. If it's going to cost me something, and what we see throughout the Gospels is that people were very regularly willing to follow Jesus a little bit, but they weren't really willing to completely buy into who he is wholesale. Which brings us to a third response, which is to see Jesus as the suffering Messiah. And I would like to suggest to you that Matthew gives us this amazing interpretive clue in the, in the very final verses of chapter 20, just before where we started today in chapter 21. As Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, he instructs his disciples and he says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then listen to these short couple verses. As Jesus and the disciples left the town of Jericho, remember they're approaching Jerusalem, a large crowd followed behind. Two blind men were sitting beside the road. When they heard that Jesus was coming that way, they began shouting, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Be quiet, the crowd yelled at them. But they only shouted louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. When Jesus heard them, he stopped and called, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, they said, we want to see. Jesus felt sorry for them and touched their eyes. Instantly, they could see. Then they followed When we see Jesus correctly, when we see Jesus as Scripture shows him to us, we recognize that we were all blind until Jesus touched us and opened our eyes to see him for who he really is and to see him as the suffering Messiah. And those who view Jesus as the suffering Messiah and are willing to follow him need to reconcile 
that if our master suffered, we also will suffer if we seek to follow him. And those who follow Jesus as our suffering Messiah know that there will be difficult times ahead. But just as Jesus overcame, so we also who are in him will overcome. It's not going to be easy. It will cost us time, perhaps ridicule, perhaps money, perhaps a job opportunity or the respect or dignity from some other people in our lives. But we see Jesus most clearly when we see him as our suffering Messiah. So this morning, my prayer for you, if you're someone who has struggled with doubts about Jesus, is that you would truly search the scriptures and see him as he is portrayed. If you're someone who falls into the trap of the convenient Jesus, my prayer for you is that you would stop seeing Jesus in this blurry fashion, in this half-hearted way, but that you would see him for who he truly is. And if you're someone who believes that you see Jesus clearly as your suffering Messiah, and you have recognized and reconciled that to follow him comes at a cost, my prayer is that you would continue to see him as he truly is, that you would continue to know your need for the good news, and that you would display Christ to those around you, and that when people look at you, that they would see Jesus. So this morning, I want to leave you with this. This is the most important question I think you can answer. Who is Jesus? And I don't want to let you off the hook that easily and just let you give the right answer because I know many of us know that. But let me phrase it a different way. How does your life answer this question of who is Jesus? How would those who know you best answer this question for you? If you recognize Jesus for who he truly is, it's the most important thing you can do, and it changes everything about our lives and how we seek to follow him. So let me pray for us, and then I'll turn it back over to Jared and Callie. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for the chance for us to remember who Christ is. I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the interpretive clues that we have to see Jesus as our humble king riding in on a donkey's colt. And Father, my prayer for everyone who's listening through technology, for any visitors who are watching for the first time, I pray that you would help them by your Holy Spirit to see Jesus clearly, to see him accurately as your scriptures portray him. And Father, would you please, by your Spirit, give us the strength to follow him, even when there's cost. May we be followers of Christ, who point to Christ by our lives, who are also marked by humbleness, by meekness and gentleness, and a willingness to serve others. Please help us do that for Christ's name's sake and help anyone who's, who's doubting to really investigate their doubts and really look into who Jesus is. And I pray that you would bring many people to place their faith and trust in Christ. May Jesus be glorified now and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray.